Uh, David, thank you so much for coming in uh, to our studio to talk about your book, Against Elections. Um, we have obviously been through quite a turbulent period very recently in the UK with democracy and yeah. elections of various kinds. We've had the, the Brexit referendum. We have had a leadership contest with the Tory party. There's still one ongoing in the Labour Party. Uh, and it seems with everything going on in America as well, of course, with the presidential elections soon to come, it seems to be everywhere. And I think a lot of people feel either very engaged or very unengaged in democracy. Mm -hmm. And your book is absolutely about that. And I wonder if we could sort of start off about looking at the difference between democracy and elections. Right. We yeah. think of those things as being one of the same things. Synonymous, even. Yeah. Could you explain a little bit why they are actually two different things? Well, it took a while in my own mind to realise that who says elections does not necessarily say democracy. Yeah. Uh, but that seems like a heresy to say. Uh, we've always learnt at school and wherever in political thinking and on newspapers and on television that uh, democracy boils down to organising free and fair elections uh, at given intervals. Um, now, that idea is rather rather recent. Mm. We've been trying to do democracy, experimenting with forms of democracy for the past 3,000 years. We've only been doing it through elections for the past 200 years. Mm. So we should stop thinking that the only way to do democracy is through elections. Uh, elections came about in a very pe uh, peculiar context uh, at the f end of the French Revolution and the American Revolution. This is the moment when elections entered the political system. Uh, when I was a, a kid at school in the Flemish countryside, I always learned that the French Revolution did away with aristocracy and was the beginning of democracy uh, thanks to elections. I mean, that was like the, the standard opinion. Now, it turns out on closer inspection, and a couple of people have done fantastic historical research about it, it turns out that what was replaced by the French Revolution was not necessarily aristocracy as such, but a very particular form of aristocracy, namely hereditary aristocracy. That is, uh, why should people who have castles, titles, hunting grounds, why should they have the power? Mm. Uh, and what it replaced it with was not necessarily democracy, but a new form of aristocracy. Uh, and that aristocracy was not based on, on, on hereditary principles, but rather on an elective procedure. So elections were very willingly introduced after the French and First American Revolution because people were fed up with monarchs. They were fed up with counts and marquises and viscounts who had too much power to their taste. And they said, like, we should have a new aristocracy running our societies. And these uh, should be based on, 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 on intellect, on moral insight, on, on our qualifications and whatsoever. You see it very often that a revolution is done by the people to chase away the number ones, but straight after, it's the number twos taking power. <laughs> Look at what has happened in Egypt. People came to, people took to the streets, they were manifesting, protesting on Tahrir Square, but it was the Muslim Brotherhood who took power. Yeah. And this is so typical. It's the numbers two of society that are happy that the numbers one are chased away, and they climb to the fore and claim to represent the interest of, of the masses. Now, in the French and um, American Revolution, there was a lot of uh, talk about uh, le peuple and the people, and it was always written with a capital P. Mm. Uh, but what you, if you look at it in detail, those people were uh, advocates of the republican model, but not necessarily of the democratic variant of republicanism. The word democracy, to their ears, 
sounded as dangerous as the word anarchy mm. would sound to many ears today. And we've forgotten about this. We've been so much trained that these were the founding fathers uh, of of the of the of modernity and of of the modern the modern nation state that we haven't looked into this. And I found a text which is absolutely unbelievable, a text from the early 19th century, saying like what we call uh, elective aristocracy uh, should be replaced by the word representative democracy. Mm. This is where it happened. And then a couple of you know a couple of decades later, Tocqueville is writing. Alexis de Tocqueville, the French aristocrat, is visiting America, and he's writing perhaps the most important political book ever called *De la Démocratie en Amérique* on 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 democracy in America. And he is the man who is giving the word democracy to the model, the Republican model based on elections. Mm. And ever since, we are still struggling with this aristocratic procedure, because. It's interesting. The revolutionaries in France and in the United States only came one generation, one generation and a half after Rousseau and Montesquieu, the most important political thinkers of their time. And they wrote very clearly that uh, election is the instrument of aristocracy and the instrument of democracy is sortition, lottery, uh, drafting people by lot. And they did so, Rousseau and Montesquieu, because they had been reading Aristotle. And Aristotle had been writing this like like a, a, more than 2,000 years before them because he knew Athenian democracy. And Athenian democracy was solidly based on the principle of lottery. There were about 7,000 public functions in Athens in the 5th and the 4th century. Only 100 were elected. The rest of them were uh, attributed by lot. Mm -hmm. And so there was a trust that uh, if you give a random sample of the population uh, a voice to speak and first to document itself and then to speak out, they were going to represent. This was going to be a better form of representative democracy than the representative democracy we have now. Yeah. It's a bit of a misnomer, representative (laughs) democracy, isn't it? (laughs) Well, exactly. This idea, people, the only thing I think we have for people to kind of grab onto is jury service is something Mm. that people can understand where people are chosen entirely at random and entrusted with an incredibly important responsibility Responsibility. which is to decide whether somebody is innocent or guilty and we do that and yet people will struggle with the idea of sortition I wonder actually if you could explain a little bit more about how how that sort of sortition works Athenian democracy and and how it might work in the future Right so we we have the the three powers in democracy which is the, the legislative the executive and the judiciary the only little corner of public life where we still use lottery is in the is in, in, in jury trials. Uh, my argument is an argument to go back to the times when democracy was using lottery on a much wider scale. Mm. I'm not saying that we should draft by lot the next uh, minister of defense uh, or, or, or the foreign secretary for that matter. Yeah. Um, although I think your present one wasn't elected either to that function, was he? No. Um, but what uh, what I'm claiming is that it might be interesting in the legislative branch of uh, democratic government to start using lottery. And I know it sounds a bit strange. It sounds a bit, a bit, a bit crazy. And yet at the same time, we're already using lottery every day in democracy, in the legislative part of democrati- democratic government. And we're doing so in the most awful way. And we call it opinion polls. Okay. <laughs> when opinion polls is basically you make a random sample of roughly a thousand citizens, mm. you give them a phone call or you send them an email, you give them a phone call between five and seven o'clock in the evening, because that's when, when they're at home, and you ask them how they feel about Syrian migrants. Uh, 
people give their opinion without having given it a thought. Mm. Uh, and the outcome of that voice will influence policy making. I think that is frightening. Yeah, yeah. In an opinion poll, we ask people what they think when they have not been thinking. <laughs> Wouldn't it be much more interesting to hear what these people have to say after they had a chance to think? Mm. Now, the lottery model I'm proposing and and I'm, I'm following, I mean, I'm not the only one. I mean, they're academic. There's been a lot of academic research. James Fishkin in the United States has been very important uh, in this respect. It's basically creating a random sample of citizens, not just to ask their raw opinion at first, uh, but ask their opinion as well after they had a chance to learn. And so what Fishkin did, the American professor, was quite interesting. Uh, he, he, he did an opinion poll in Texas. He was a professor in Texas. And the question was, would you be willing to pay, uh, to have a higher bill for your electricity if it, was, if it came from a renew renewable source mm. in Texas, <laughs> the oil state uh, par excellence in the United States? And I think about half of the Texans said that they were willing perhaps to pay a little bit more, which to me seems still quite a sizable amount yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they said, like, okay, fair enough. This is what we know when we poll people. Now, let's bring this random sample together for a weekend. Let's, uh, let's give them information. Let them talk to experts on climate. Let them talk to politicians. And above all, let them talk to each other. You know, they, people can learn from each other as well. And then he polled them again at the end of the weekend. And the figure had risen, I think, from uh, about 50% to well above 80%. Wow. After documentation. And one year later, he polled them again, asking, like, are you still willing to pay more for your bill? And people said, yes. So it shows that a random sample that has been informed can have a change of mind. Uh, and it's not quite true. Imagine that this model would have been applied to the Brexit discussion here. Mm. Imagine that uh, this would have been done. Um, I think it would have been interesting. I mean, I haven't got anything against Brexit. If I would have been a Briton, I would happily uh, accept Brexit as long as I know that this was taken on the basis of intelligent and rational arguments and reasons. Mm. The fact is we don't know whether this was the case. Quite the opposite. There are a number of indicators that the decision was not taken very rationally. Mm. Lies have been used. Lies have been used to foster the personal careers and political ambitions of a number of individuals who were siding with the uh, Leave camp. And well, if you see that quite a sizable share of British voters changed their mind less than 24 hours after the results came in, one can wonder how, how cognitive that decision had been taken, how intelligent and how rational it was. Yeah. And I think you could say a referendum is only an opinion poll with the direct outcome, with the more dangerous result. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, I'm not against referendums as such. I think they can, ha they can be meaningful. I mean, like you look at Switzerland, they do, have a, they, ha they do have a function there. But this is a country with two centuries of uh, referendum culture. Uh, this is not quite the case in, in Britain or, or in Belgium or in Holland for that matter. And uh, I'm greatly worried about procedures to improve democracy by moving from elections towards referendums. I mean, both are quite primitive, arcane instruments to understand what people want. Mm. In elections, you tick a box next to someone's name, and in referendums, you tick a box next to a syllable. <laughs> yes or no. Yeah. Remain or leave. Well, that's two syllables in the case of remain. That's perhaps because why leave one. <laughs> but it's a, I, found, I found it strange that at the time... 
that people are more educated than ever before. I'm not saying that everyone in, in Great Britain is an intellectual. I'm not saying this is the case uh, in other Western democracies. But what is the case in all these democracies is that people have never been so well-educated as they are now. They have never had such access to information as it is now. And we're not doing anything with that. Mm. The wisdom of the crowd is never tapped. It's even shunned. Mm. There is massive distrust from citizens towards politicians, but equally so from politicians towards citizens. Now, that is worrying. That's a worrying situation. Uh, I'm, I'm very worried about the fact that we're living in an age where the interest for politics is higher than ever and the trust in democracy and in democratic procedures is lower than ever. Mm. These are explosive times. I've seen research in farming communities in the 1960s in continental Europe. Political apathy was total. People were not interested at all in politics, but they had a great sense of trust mm-hmm. in politicians, in the political parties, and well, I cast my vote and that's it. Mm. Today, it's rather the opposite. The trust in political institutions is at an all-time low, and the uh, political enthusiasm, and the political passions are higher than ever. Now, these are explosive situations. And I think the fact that more and more people are interested in politics is actually, it's, it's a gift. Mm. But we are not using it. Politicians run away from it. Research has shown that politicians uh, consider themselves consistently as being better, as being more open-minded, as having a, a bigger international perspective, as having a more a better understanding of the issues that are at hand. So there is an idea that uh, we cannot trust citizens. Now, if you cannot trust citizens, stop being a democracy, <laughs> because that's the very nature of democracy. Absolutely. Abraham Lincoln used to say, I mean, famously, that democracy is government of the people, for the people, by the people. That third part of the equation, we've forgotten it a little bit. And there's another African saying, much less well-known than, than, uh, than the line by, by Lincoln. But there's this line saying that everything you've done for me, without me, you've done against me. And this is more true than ever. Mm. And especially at a time that people get more information, get better education, I think it is strange that we still stick to a procedure of the late 18th century. Mm. We're living in a time that everything should innovate. Innovation is like the buzzword of this generation, uh, whether it's in science and technology, in business, in sports, uh, wherever. But if we believe that innovation is such an important thing, why are we so stubborn in believing that the democratic system could do with an update as well? Mm. We're basically streaming videos uh, uh, based on some DOS uh, software underneath it. I mean, this is literally what democracy is about now. How many things of the late 18th century are still being used uh, without an update, Uh, like the hot air balloon or the snuff box? I mean, elections belong to that period. Yeah. And there were instruments uh, from an earlier age even, and they belong to a firmly aristocratic tradition. Elections before the French Revolution and before the American Revolutions were used to find consensus around an elite. And we still see it when a new pope had to be elected. Mm. Then the cardinals, the elite of the organization, come together in the Sistine Chapel and they try to find out who is going to be the one amongst us who will be lead the, the flock. Mm. Now, try to imagine this. Elections were once used to find consensus among an elite. Now they are used to fight among the masses. 
Mm. That is quite a, tra- a transition. And we are not fully aware of the fact. I mean, we've all become electoral fundamentalists. I mean, I, I wrote a book previously on Congo. And if people said that Congo should democratize, it was like in the same sense when they talk about Iraq or Afghanistan or Somalia, they basically say they should hold elections the way we do it. Mm. It's like an IKEA package. We're sending it to them. And if, 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 if your furniture is a bit poorly assembled, it's your fault, right? Uh, I think that's utterly strange. The idea that if, if Congo or any other African nation or any other failed nation state would be using elections, uh, the day after election they would wake up and living in Scandinavia, mm. right? I think that's highly problematic. Why are we exporting everywhere in the world a model that is no longer working in our own world anymore? That's a very good point. I mean, one of the most compelling arguments I thought in your book was to do with the reason why sortition works or, or could work is because it means that more people become involved in politics. You have a series of jobs that you can become involved in for a year only, right, right. and then you, you get on with your, your life. But right. it means that more and more people will actually become involved mm. in democracy, right. become involved in making right. laws, and right. deciding how we all live. And that, to me, seemed very persuasive because, mm. as you mm. say, People out there at the moment are very engaged, very aware of what's going mm. on, and very forthright in their opinions. Right. But they have no way of expressing them except exactly. by sort of putting angry posts on Facebook right. and sharing an angry vote in a referendum. Yeah, exactly. You know, sort of lots or in of, an American presidential election. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, it, I'm just wondering, sort of, where do we where do we go in the future to find the positive spin right. on all of this and make the best use yeah. of that energy? It's true. There's a lot of anger. And quite frankly, I understand that anger. I can't even empathize with it. Because if you're allowed to follow political developments every second of the day uh, for four years on end, and only once every four years, you're allowed to speak out. Mm. And that speaking out is reduced to ticking a box Mm. in the penumbra of a voting booth. That is rather limited, isn't it? Uh, So I quite understand that people are angry. And because of this anger, politicians are running away from the populace. Well, you see, we can't we can't have a reasonable talk with them because they're not even they don't know how to behave themselves yeah, yeah. correctly. Uh, I think it's a very wrong. I, f- I think that anger is a gift. It's a gift wrapped in barbed wire, uh, and you should try to take that barbed wire off and try to see what people really have to say. Mm. And I don't think giving them a, a referendum as a bone to chew on is a very good way. Uh, uh, I don't think it is. Mm. Um, I, I would broad, much rather see. I mean, the good example of what has happened in Ireland a couple of years ago with the Irish Constitutional Convention. It was a con- convention that consisted of 33 elected politicians sitting together for one year, several weekends. I think it was one weekend every month uh, with 66 Irish citizens drafted by lot. And they had to revise eight articles of the Irish Constitution. And the main article, the most difficult one, was the one on same-sex marriage. Mm. Now, we know now that it was voted in a referendum in Ireland only last year. This referendum was called for by the Irish Constitutional Convention. And by putting together citizens that were elected with citizens that were drafted, a new dynamic was possible. And a dynamic that would not have been possible with party politics as we know it. Mm. No one dared to defend same-sex marriage unless they were going to start and talk with regular people. Mm. And uh, I found, imagine that this would have been used in the Brexit. Imagine that a informed cross-section, a random sample of British society would have had the chance to talk to politicians, to talk to experts, to talk to each other, sit down, talk the issue through. 
and then that their recommendation would go to a referendum, it would have been a decision. It might have still have been a Brexit, fine, but it would have been much more informed mm. and much more rational rather than the sort of angry vote we know got uh, from people who thought Boris Johnson had a nice haircut. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not a good thing to base any decision on. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad we're finishing with laughter, David, because it's a very thorny subject, but I found your book fascinating because it it raises, as you say, a lot of things that are from thousands of years ago, but that might actually help us to innovate our democracy and make it work much better in the future. That's right. So thank you for, for making some of that a bit clearer today. Thank you.